another bonus episode of the Little Women Podcast. Here with me today, I have my friend Susanna Stangle. Hi, guys. She waved, which is adorable because this is not a visual medium. I'm just excited, Shannon. This I'm is, sorry. This is her first time on like an interview conversation style podcast like this. My heart is glowing. <laughs> but she's um, a teaching artist and a dramaturg working here in Chicago. And we met actually uh, playing sisters Anna and Elsa from Frozen at a children's Christmas event. Absolutely. Our sisterhood has been born of that classic fictional pairing. Yeah, trying to furtively talk about politics in costume while children meet and greet with Santa Claus just a few feet away. Do you remember that kid that ran so fast her shoe fell off as she ran to us? Yes, it was an extremely touching and wholesome Christmas event on and it the led to us being buddies. Yes, and here yeah. you are. Well, I'm so excited to talk about today's topic, which really picks up where we left off with bonus episode number four, talking about Bronson Alcott schools. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about, broadly speaking, education during the era of little women. So kind of going from the antebellum, which is when Louisa May and her sisters were actually growing up through the Civil War, and then Reconstruction, which are the time periods when the novel takes place. Uh, so Susanna has done most of the research, which is good because <laughs> I'm very sick and my voice is barely holding on. Uh, and on Proud that note, uh, Susanna, take it away. I think let's pick up where we left off with Bronson having his school shut down because he admitted a black student. Absolutely. Um, So yeah, first off, I want to go ahead and and preface all of this good stuff by saying that I am a dramaturg, which means that I am often hired by productions uh, to do research on the world and the lifeblood of the play. And in a similar manner, I was hired by Shannon to do that for this. So I'm no expert, but I am an enthusiast about anything that emboldens me to know more about the disenfranchisement of women, um, specifically to learn more about my privilege as a white lady, which is kind of what this first topic brings up uh, because uh, correct me if I'm wrong but Bronson um, his school was closed for admitting a black student correct that's correct so basically the system with private schools was Mm -hmm. students uh, parents would individually pay tuition and after he admitted this black student all the other students pulled out basically leaving him penniless more or less But I do want to add a a big asterisk next to that because I think I might be carving out my niche in the Little Women fandom as the biggest Bronson hater. (laughs) But I do think his intentions in um, bringing this girl into his school were somewhat mixed. I think he did. He was a fervent abolitionist. I mean, they were a stop on the Underground Railroad. I also think it was a publicity stunt that took advantage of this girl and her family. And there's a lot of talk about the difference between the authentic liberation politics of integrating the schools and the possibility that the violence, the pain, the racism was just going to overtake everything and the publicity stunts were not enough. Um, So this kind of came to the fore a little bit when I was researching specifically some really boss ladies that were educational reformers during this time, some women that stepped up to the plate and made themselves uh, true allies to not just white women, but women of color. Um, Unfortunately, in the antebellum South, 
the vast majority of educational effort that was going towards uh, black individuals, African-American individuals, was towards uh, those who were freed. Um, and it wasn't even a question of whether or not an enslaved person should require an education. In many cases, it was illegal to teach a slave to read or write. Um, I believe um, some hardcore scholars can come in and, and email you about this later, but it has something to do with uh, an insurrection in the 1830s uh, by a slave called Nat Turner, who had been emboldened to read or write. And uh, this was just a no-go uh, for the surrounding community. Um, so. I'm going to take a quick second and tell you about one of my favorite boss ladies in education that I learned about. Yes, please. We're definitely all about that here on this podcast. And um, I think it's really important to talk about the specific issues that you brought up when we talk about Little Women. Uh, so, yeah, I'm really excited. Oh, yeah. And Shannon and I are both white. And that plays a huge role in our dissection of female politics and really being able to understand that the perspective of women throughout history at all times, um, that gives us a really important frame to talk about our privilege. And I do it all day long, every day. So I want to make sure that you guys know that I am no expert on African-American history whenever I say anything about uh, this period of tension. Uh, but I'm always just trying to be the best white lady historian <laughs> I can be. Yeah, we're always just trying to do better. And for specific work cited, you can check back on the website later today. Visit the show notes blog and we'll be able to link you to some sources, some primary sources and people who are coming from a place of more authority than us. Yeah. But in the meantime, you know, they can enjoy our conversation. Yes, my queen. Um, so I'm going to talk to you first about a woman named Prudence Crandell, who was um, active um, in Connecticut during this time. Um, her years, her dates are 1803 to 1890. Uh, but the reason she strikes a specific chord when we're talking about Bronson today is that um, she opened a school called the Canterbury School in Connecticut. And it was one of the first female boarding schools educating toddlers all the way through 12th graders. And it had a lot of renown and success for a while. Um, so she founded it in 1831 and emboldened by kind of a spirit of inclusivity the following year, and also, I'm sure, public esteem, the following year in 1832, she admitted one and only one um, African-American student, uh, a girl named Sarah Harris, and the white protests and the ridiculous, hateful acts, um, including acts of destruction to the actual site of the school, were immediate, and almost all of the, the white daughters were taken from the school. Crandell, though, she made the most possible boss reaction to this, Shannon. She decided to reopen the school exclusively for African-American students. Oh, my gosh. I wasn't expecting that, but that's awesome. Yeah, so that's the little Bronson reversal that we kind of yeah. needed to dive under the hood of. That's the radical act I was looking for in episode number four. Allow me to... Uh, Stymie your excitement immediately. Oh, no. Um, because people retaliated with the creation of locally biased laws that made it really hard for her to uh, logistically support the school, um, to keep it healthy and functioning, and, of course, yet more violence. And the school closed formally in 1834. Um, but what stories like Prudence Crandell's get me thinking about is – how much more we could have done and 
the legacy tracing, how much more we can do to include everyone at this at the table of education. And that's kind of a little bit what we're going to be getting into next, I think, is what education looked like, why some people were allowed to access it more than others, and what that still means today. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that uh, Little Women, the book, even has its sort of unexpected biases we might not expect today. Uh, obviously, the Alcotts were passionate abolitionists, mm-hmm. and the marches memorably help out um, a German immigrant family. But in the scenes when Amy is at school, there's talk of, quote, the filthy little Irish children who don't deserve to go to school with them. And they're standing out in the yard having things thrown at them. Between 1820 and 1870, I actually learned this was like the highest influx of immigration into the United States that had happened to that point. And we really began flexing our muscles with the haves and the have not status and the issues that still bother us today at that time and of course i don't want to make it seem like i'm comparing the plight of irish immigrants and enslaved people that's not it at all i just think it's interesting that even people who consider themselves allies even if that isn't the word they would have used back then can still have these own prejudices in their hearts and you mentioned a little bit I've loved your your episode, bonus episode four, where you talked about Bronson and the extent to which he was an ally and also a massive undercutter of the feminist policies of his daughters. And I actually, when I was reviewing for this episode, wondered, speaking of Amy, if her teacher, Mr. Davis, gave Louisa a small space to talk about some of the tension that she was feeling with her father. And I was just wondering if that's something that could take us forward. That would not surprise me at all because Mr. Davis is a teacher who uses corporal punishment um, and their father used corporal punishment on them despite preaching against the use of it in the schools, which I'm sure was incredibly psychologically and emotionally confusing for these girls. So I think that's an astute observation because I'm not sure... How much formal schooling the Alcott's ever received? I would have to go and look that back up. I know a lot of their education just came from home. So it would make a lot of sense if that were true. It was kind of a decision family to family whether to continue educating their daughters beyond uh, basically elementary school years during this time. It kind of depended on the specific vocational uh, thrust of the family, um, the financial possibilities. um, But for the most part, um, corporal punishment is something that when I was doing research on women in education kind of kept coming up as a way to... um, differentiate the treatment that women and men were receiving because apparently men received more corporal punishment in the schools and continue to to this day because it is only outlawed in 32 states formally to this day um but what really drew my eye when i was looking into the story is connecting it directly to amy's valley of humiliation or the scene where she experiences it with mr davis so i kind of wanted to talk a little bit about that yes let's What stood out to me a lot was the language of not just retribution, but reformation in the reasoning behind uh, corporal punishment at the time. So the idea being not to just make somebody feel bad, but to create an instigating fire for future good acts. 
So the idea is a public display. That sort of sounds like it's like giving me reminders of Puritan culture. Would you say that's fair to say? Like those New England Puritan roots of it? Absolutely. I think there's roots in Calvinism. I think for the most part, um, we're seeing a trickle down effect in education becoming a public movement, starting with the colonists in New England. And so I think a lot of those kind of shrewd, intense Calvinist puritanical values are, are at play in this conversation. Yeah. We get um, justification for corporal punishment because of this. I'm going to get Latin up in here this morning (laughs) because of the common law doctrine in loco parentis. Which the cool kids know from Hamilton. Oh, heck yes. (laughs) Where teachers are considered authority figures and they're granted the same rights as parents to punish their children if they do not adhere to the rules of the classroom. And this became really popular throughout the 17th century. And you still see it, obviously, alive and well in Alcott's time. Um, But as a teacher, for most of my 20s... (laughs) That's really interesting. Um, oh, sorry. No, I just, it just, I can't imagine. Oh, yeah. I can't imagine. I was going to say, it's really interesting how Louisa actually subverted that idea with the Little Women sequels, where Joe and Professor Bear open up these schools that are like the home, a home that the kids move into and like joe and the march family take care of them all as if they're their children there's certainly i don't think any corporal punishment involved um but it's like a really interesting kind of pacifist subversion of that idea of in loco parentis you could almost like call it louisa may alcott's narrative um way of booing some of her father's perspectives on what education should have looked like she was playing that out or to maybe take it from a different angle, she was playing out like his better angels, you know, oh, like yes, his best his ideas uh, were kind of given reign in her in a way that maybe his mental illness wouldn't allow during his lifetime. Oh, that's actually kind of beautiful and sad. <laughs> that's Little Women for ya. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but basically, when it came to figuring out um, more about corporal punishment, I, I went to the I went to the text. I looked at that scene with Amy, and I thought very specifically about a guy that we're going to talk a little bit about this morning called Horace Mann, who is uh, at the root of Massachusetts educational politics in the time of the uh, Alcotts. He was actually the first secretary of the first ever state board of education, which was in Massachusetts. What, what? And he is known for uh, populating an educational reform perspective that 100% influenced Bronson or maybe kind of a, a vice versa thing. And he basically was in favor of what was known as common schools. So common schools were supposed to, for the first time, really prioritize the education of women for the first time ever. And this is looking like the 1830s was the time that this this energy really hit the country hard and also um, get freed and specifically freed only people of color education for the first time Um, and also to commonize to make schools common in general so that um, anyone regardless of their educational status would have this right and this privilege he saw it as a a virtuous right of all children to have education and one of the coolest ways that I learned about corporal punishment was actually by learning about how much Horace Mann, educational OG reformer, hated 
corporal punishment. And I got a I got a juicy quote over here whenever you're ready. Oh, I'm I'm ready for it. I mean, obviously the ELO song Diary of Horace Mann is now running through my head on a yes. loop. And I'm really excited to check out his Wikipedia page later and learn more about him. Uh, Horace Mann, I'm sure, has many flawed um, elements to him. But I'm uh, consider me a Horace Mann fangirl <laughs> after after the research for this podcast. What if we have to milkshake Doug Horace Mann? <laughs> oh, no. I want it. I'm kidding. I'm it. kidding. Um, all right, here we go. I'm going to get my Horace Mann on, guys. So this is uh, a quote from him in 1844 where he is kind of reacting specifically to the use of whips and rods in the classroom. And I don't know if you have a different reading of this. I'd love to hear your perspective on it. But when I was looking back at Chapter 7 or Amy's Valley of Humiliation, it didn't become clear to me what Mr. Davis was using to hit her. Um, It could have just been hand on hand or the most common thing in the time was to use a rod. Yeah, I have always sort of interpreted it as like a rod, like she was struck on the hand. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem like she was just struck with his hand because it seems to be a much more grievous injury than that, based on my reading of the text. I agree. Um, And again, ties back to what I was talking about earlier, the idea that it was supposed to be a public spectacle that was supposed to change Sorry, I didn't mean to distract you. What's the happening? cat is sticking her paws out oh, from under the crack. Oh, kitty cat! I didn't mean to throw you off. Your no, face. no worries. I, I thought you would just. Look. Hi, kitty pie. I'm gonna let her out. I think we're, are we gonna have a Luna co-star moment right now? She wants to hear about Horace Mann too. She's a smart girl. All right, we ready for this juicy quote? <clears throat> Where he comes down hard. Authority, force, fear, pain. These are the motives by which the children of Boston, and if this doctrine prevails, the children of the state also are to be trained. Throughout this whole section, conscience is nowhere referred to as one of the motive powers in the conduct of children. The idea seems not to have entered the minds of the writer, the writer being the person who is being like, yay, corporal punishment, um, that... Nay, such agency could be employed in establishing the earliest as well as the latest relations between teacher, teacher and pupil. That powerful class of motives which consists of affection for parents, love for brothers and sisters, whether older or younger than themselves, justice and the social sentiment towards schoolmates, respect for elders, the pleasure of acquiring knowledge, the duty of doing as we would be done by, the connection between present conduct and success, estimation, eminence in future life, the presence of an unseen eye. Not a syllable of all of these is set forth with any earnestness or insisted upon. What is set forth, he he argues, is this kind of curse of a vicious parentage. This iron blows that parental hands uh, should have been offering in protection and instead are being offered in violence. And so he urges the objects of schools, I'm going back to his language, to bring this class of children, children who were benefiting from common law schools, um, under humanizing and refining influences to show them that there is something besides wrath and stripes and the suffering in God's world. Um, So yeah, Horace Mann fangirl for life over here. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And I really relate to that. But also authority, force, fear, pain. Sounds like the beginning of a Star Wars scroll. (laughs) Absolutely. And he's responding directly to these Boston schoolmasters, these people in Massachusetts who are basically saying that in certain cases, it's necessary, it's natural, it's proper. 
children should not have authority called into question ever. And teachers basically became these symbols. And you hear Mr. Davis, even though he's doing it in a more nuanced way, kind of fighting for that same emblem of authority. That man would undercut. Thank God. Uh, And another thing about Mr. Davis um, that I think is sort of interesting and interesting about this time period is Bronson was kind of an outlier with being an older, established man who was also a teacher. A lot of teachers during this era were very, very young. And a lot of them were women, white women, um, very white women mm-hmm. to be to be specific. Um, a lot of times this started um, way back speaking in colonial times um, with these things called dame schools where people were educated directly in the home by their mothers um, or by a governess or by a female authority figure in their home. Um, And um, these women were only for very long um, until I believe the beginning of the 1800s, only exclusively uh, teaching boys, only boys. Uh, But women were the teachers. And oftentimes you'll hear a lot of rhetoric, um, even from female proto-feminists at this time, that women make the best natural teachers it's kind of the best vocation for our nurture and organizational skills and so sometimes i would be reading about somebody who seemed like an education feminist at the time but her big thesis would be women should teach and that's all we should do yeah it's we do have this sort of era of proto-feminism where a lot of women made the arguments that women should be allowed to vote because women were like angelic and supernaturally better than men, which, hey girl, but, <laughs> but also is very frustrating and dehumanizes women by putting them on an unrealistic and impossible pedestal. And in this case, really limiting, I would say for centuries a lot of what the vocational roots that women enabled themselves capable of to be and I think you you start to see this in colonial times where women are are teaching only boys in the dame schools and even though they're the teachers they're not supposed to do anything with that besides teach more boys and eventually girls too but um I think we're going to get into next kind of how the disparity was between um what education looked like in the time generally and the kind of education that women were being given Okay, guys, we're going to talk about somebody else I used used to like more. Uh, Horace Mann, I still love. I'm sure there's. I'm sure one of your comments is going to reveal something about him that I, I shouldn't love. Susanna seems to think we have a lot more comments than there are. Well, maybe there should be. Uh, somebody should get on and, and make me feel bad about Horace Mann because I'm definitely fangirling too hard. Uh, but Horace Mann subreddit. <laughs> yes, let's Read go. Read him for Phil. Let's, let's do it. I, I need to have myself complicated by this. <laughs> Uh, But I'm going to talk about somebody else, which is late 18th century, your boy Thomas Jefferson, who is basically, (laughs) yeah, yeah, we we got complicated feelings already. Uh, He's basically popularizing the notion that Horace Mann capitalizes on with his common schools movement in the 1830s that um, everyone deserves the right to an education. But let's be clear. Everyone deserves the right to some education. White men deserve the most education. He comes down very specifically in talking about this when he talks about the way he wants his daughters to be educated. Thomas Jefferson's belief on this was widely published and I believe colored a lot of the educational principles that you see thrumming through the world of Joe and Amy and Meg. Okay, so 
we're looking for the most part in education in general at being a really recitation-based system, right? A system where uh, pupils are getting their basics, reading, writing, and arithmetic, but boys are also getting training um, starting in the 1830s throughout antebellum America, not just North, but uh, not just South, but also North in uh, philosophy, politics, the understanding of some of what went down to create the founding of the country that they're living in. Women's educational extracurricular pursuits, and I'm going to trace this to our boy Thomas Jeff in just a second, had a lot more to do with the perfection of a service mystique, the perfection of an ability to present themselves well, to be the moral and virtuous heart of the household. And the way that this played out a lot in the classroom was in the form of needlework. Hmm, needlework. As Amy says in both the book and latest movie, it's time to give up her artistic pursuits and become an ornament to society. Uh, yes, ornamentals, accomplishments like needlework, music, Dancing, these are the only things that a woman is supposed to learn besides the basics of reading, writing, and arithmetic. So while boys are creating a space for themselves to become uh, political uh, movers and shakers, women um, throughout the 1820s through the 1840s specifically are getting these very rigorous lessons in needlework that first start with intensive replications of a specific pattern and then culminate always in an intricate pastoral landscape. So it's a two-part educational premise based on needlework for girls. The Alcotts were sort of, the Alcott sisters were sort of outliers in the sense that they were exposed to history and philosophy and theology and politics through their father and mother and their many, you know, famous transcendentalist friends but, of course, that's paired with the pastoral reality of starving in the countryside. Absolutely. And um, there's this really awesome quote by the guy who was the president of Yale in 1812, where he thought it was high time that women should be considered less as pretty and more as rational. So this is his reaction to somebody like Thomas Jefferson. So less as pretty and more as rational. Um, and this is working off of many, many decades of these roots in a post-colonial American woman who was so delicately genteel. Um, and to use a Thomas Jefferson language here, he says, a plan for female education has never been a subject of systematic contemplation with me. It has occupied my attention only so far as the education of my own daughters occasionally required. So this is a guy that we consider Thomas Jefferson to be an active sculptor of the premises upon which many of our public systems and our views on education and equality were built. And he is admitting openly to barely thinking about female education, except for when it came to his daughters. And he had a uh, a daily routine for his oldest daughter that I'm going to share with you. And I think it really has its continuing lingering tendrils in the world of education that Joe, Amy, Meg, Beth are living in. So from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock, practice music. From 10 to 1, dance one day, draw another. Oh. 
From one to two, draw on the day you dance and write a letter the next day. From two to four, read French. From four to five, exercise yourself in music. And from five until bedtime, read English, write, and occasional arithmetic. So, yes, this is stemming from a voice, you know, decades before the world that our girls are living in. But it is the way that they were taught in the schoolrooms that Joe and Amy and and the team were in. They were separated by gender, Shannon. There was often like a a stove or some sort of wall partition that kept the boys and the girls separate. I know something that's really caught people's eye with the 2019 movie is mixed ages in the schoolroom. Would you say that that's accurate? Absolutely. So they would often be, and this depended very much on the um, financial uh, capabilities of the school and the community that was being uh, drawn from. So sometimes, uh, first off in the South, there was barely any public education of any kind before the Civil War. Uh, in the North, it was much more common, but oftentimes it was still relatively privatized uh, based on a really good patron citizen or sometimes founded by a church. But without exception, you would have at least a range of about five years being taught simultaneously, and sometimes the entire community uh surrounding would be all in one room these poor teachers were dealing with hundreds of children but separated by gender almost always say some students who might be basically their same age there were sometimes teachers who were pretty young and students who were pretty old for whatever reason so absolutely it's like the student is 16 the teacher is 17 and this is also an age where adult education started to become uh, more and more prevalent especially in reconstruction era united states we're getting a lot of black individuals who are having education for the first time but that's kind of sidebar nation um But what uh, you're talking about, the idea of being really young teachers, a lot of times these are women in their 20s. If we're going to the South, these are Northern women who are typically Quakers um, on some sort of emissary mission to teach and expand and make the world better. That is so fascinating. That's a rabbit hole I'm going to have to fall down later. I would have never guessed that. Oh, Quakers were some of the most prodigious teachers and um, establishers of public education throughout the United States. And as I just mentioned a second ago, it was so much more common in uh, the South for there to be just this paucity of resources, this paucity of public education. Um, And oftentimes these uh, white Northern Quaker women helped (laughs) sculpt The schools in the South. The hand clapping emoji between each one, white, northern, Quaker women. So um, I'm realizing as I get to the end of this episode and the end of this research that um, I've talked about 17 things. I have no thesis. I learned a lot about, yes, the logistics of day in, day out school. But more than anything, when I was doing this research, Shannon, I just got kind of overwhelmed by the amount that these racial gender divides they're coloring the world now so badly still (laughs) and it just it kind of took me aback yeah that's why it's worth acknowledging that they're there and they've always been there and they're a huge part of what's shaped the systems that we just take for granted but I think what I mean I don't think that this episode needs to have a thesis but I think what I take from your research is just like every other part of American culture 
um, the American school system was really in upheaval during this time period and a lot of things were changing. And that was true pretty much all across the country. So it's really fascinating that Louisa and her sisters grew up, you know, the curse of living in interesting times. They definitely lived in some interesting times. And um, a lot of the time, this was one of the lowest periods of attendance in the schools. Um, The schools were forever changed by integration. Um, The impulse to make equal education possible for black students was brought on primarily by something that I could spend a whole nother episode talking about, the Freedmen's Bureau. Um, This was an awesome public service system intended primarily to create resources for newly freed black citizens. One of the big things it did was create schools. Shannon, guess how long the Freedmen's Bureau existed? Ooh, I'm going to say less than five years. Ooh, so close. Six years. Seven years. Seven years. We got it from 1865 to 1872. And that's it. Well, we're definitely going to do another bonus episode (laughs) on the plight of freedmen and formerly enslaved people Mm -hmm. and all of that. But I, no offense, I would like to have a guest on who's maybe not a white woman to discuss that with me. You know, that makes me so happy to hear you say that. (laughs) Um, And yeah, as a white female educator, um, even though I'm from the South, uh, I've been called a Yankee my entire life. I felt like this episode was kind of sort of about seeing myself and what my experiences would have been like during that time, because I'm almost positive I would have been an educator. Yeah. Um, and so to think about, you know, the people that came into new areas to try to create a sense of justice through education, the people who failed to do that, um, the way women were handed needlework and boys were handed politics. Um You know, these are the things that I keep alive with me every time I have a weird interaction with a child where I try to teach them to care about something they may not have cared about before because Uh you never freaking know when it's going to make that difference. It's true. Well, on that lovely note, Susanna, where can listeners find out more about your work? Absolutely. So I'm on a massive come up right now. I met Shannon when I was just baby fresh in Chicago. Um, So... I am still in the depths of creating my Instagram life and my website life. Um, But if you want to, you can kind of check me out at a theater company that Shannon and I both work for called Improv Playhouse out in Libertyville. We're an awesome education training center. And then hopefully um, you will be seeing some more content for me come to life in the form of writing and um, acting across Chicago. And I hope I will be there for some of it because we have always had fun getting together and doing this. Yes, my queen. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. And thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, Until next time, bye. Bye Bye-bye.